This is the Detroit Sports Podcast Network. This week's episode of Two Bad Hombres is brought to you by the Legacy Football Organization, which was founded in 2009. It is the premier off-season development program in the state of Michigan, in the Midwest, and in the entire U.S. of A. It provides unique platforms for student athletes on and off the football field through community service, social awareness, education, and football. And it consists of a staff of many former collegiate stars and NFL players, such as former Lions wide receiver Herman Moore, as well as a past guest on these very airwaves in a former three-time All-American Michigan State linebacker, and a Super Bowl champion with the New York Football Giants in 2011, Greg Jones. To find out more about Legacy Football, please contact National Director of Football Operations, Justin Sassante, or go online to www.legacyfootballorg.com. I was trying to get it out I want them dead presidents. I want to pull up. And we are still, still, still not tired on this week's episode of Two Bad Hombres. I am your host, Vito Geranimo Churco, along to my usual sidekick and broadcast partner and fun. That is Doc from Doc and Jack. John Charles Macaroon. John, how are you doing? Vito, I don't get excited too many times for guests that come. You know, I, I listen and I pay attention to your interviews. This interview, I think, is going to be amazing. You know, when we started covering events, um, there were just a handful of people that would engage with us and actually talk to us and make us feel welcome. And one of those people is here in studio and it's amazing to see what uh, somebody with an, a story career has to offer and has to say. And hey, when anybody takes uh, you know, an invite from you and says, hey, can they come to the office? It's going to be an interesting conversation. I'm looking forward to it. We have Perry A. Farrell, retired Detroit Free Press sports writer who was covering the news at one point for the Free Press as well. Not too far back, but he has now retired Had started at the Free Press back in 1988. But you're all done now, Perry. Perry A., how are you doing? And glad to have you in studio with us today. I'm retired, and you made me come out here in this cold weather to be on your broadcast. Well, I'm glad you did it. I'm glad you accepted the invite. I didn't give you the best directions, did I? You no, can tell you everybody didn't. out there. I'm horrible with directions. Wow, and I'm I'm very uh, direction-oriented because I've traveled all over the country. I want to make sure I get from point A to point B on time. So, yeah, Well, that's okay. he was here on time, Doc. Yeah. I pretty much was. He, he beat me to the office, though. So which I, I think some guests have done in the past. I'll just leave it at that. Now, Perry, I'll put it to you like this. Okay? okay. When you work with somebody, you get a sense if they pay attention to your directions or not. And so I tell Vito, I'm like, look, with the guests, you know, tell them don't be on your Bluetooth. Don't, uh, you know, do things. Don't be on speakerphone. When you have a guest come to the studio, tell them it's a white car. Look for the, the dumpster. Uh, look for my name on the window. And each and every guest that has stepped foot in this office will say, man, Vito, don't give me any good directions. <laughs> That's what he does. So That's it's how he across treats- the board. Yeah. It's across the board, universal. That Vito just assumes that the guest is going to show up here and uh, we'll have a conversation. So that's how Vito rolls. Well, Perry's so smart. I just assumed he would know where to go, just automatically based off of the directions. I, I just made directions. It. Yeah, I made it. I just didn't know what door to come through, and I beat you here. So you did. yeah, I'll admit it. Hey, maybe I was having a bad day because I had to go to the dentist, which I did. I hate the dentist, by the way. I don't that's, know about you, Perry, but I hate the dentist. It's always a bad day when you go to the dentist. Always a bad experience. Yeah. But let's just jump right into it now, mm-hmm. John and Perry. And why did you retire from the Detroit Free Press? Why did you pick this time to retire? 
from the Detroit Free Press. You know, I guess the word would be I, I felt disrespected. I just felt it was time. And if I, I knew back in August, September, if they were going to offer buyouts, I was going to take it. Now, when did you let the Free Press know that you were going to retire, though? Well, we had a letter come out October saying if you wanted to take the early retirement, you had to do it by December 13th. Midnight of December 1st, I, I clicked the check mark to take the buyout, see what I was going to get financially. And I was ready to go because, like I said, I'd rather be my own boss than to be uh, working with someone because my only boss is Jesus. So it was the right time to retire for you. It was the right time for me to retire. How happy are you being retired now? Well, you know, I'm teaching at Wayne State. I'm teaching at Oakland University. Uh, I've been doing insurance for 13 years, so I can devote my time to things that I control instead of someone trying to control me. So I feel good about it. I just want to make sure I can pay my bills, make sure that um, I got some other things in the hopper that maybe help that help me financially. So I feel good every morning because I can get up and say, okay, if you don't get it done, you have nobody to blame but yourself. Now, Perry, for a period of time, you were a sports writer, but then they took you off the sports beat for a period of time and you covered things non-sports related prior to your retirement before coming back to sports. Take us through that because some people uh, that followed along with the free press were a little bit confused as to, okay, what happened in that scenario? Okay, Kevin Bull, uh, the worst sports editor I worked under, uh, didn't like me, so he told uh, at the time the editor who got fired and then Kevin quit the next week that, well, you know, Perry only does enough to get by while we move him to news. I had no say-so in the decision, so I moved to news, uh, I think it was February of 2017, and you know what? They respected me and appreciated me 10 times more than they did in sports. I would bang out four or five stories a day, crime stories, John Conyers, things like that. And so I felt respected. Marianne Struman was my uh, editor. She respected me. She let me do my thing. I had 15 front page stories, like 1A, 15 of them in the year that I spent in, in news. So I was appreciated. News side people liked me. And really, I should have stayed in news, but the problem was I have elderly parents, so I can't be stable to a desk for eight hours a day. I need to, like, be able to run to Saginaw, check on my parents. My sister just passed a cancer. Uh, we buried her a week ago today. And I just couldn't stay in news because I had to be in the office for eight hours. And in 36 years of working, I had never been tied to a desk for eight hours, and I just couldn't do it. So I went back into sports thinking, okay, this is what I like to do. But from the moment I got in there, this guy made sure that everything that I did was micromanaged. So I would probably still be at the free press if I'd have stayed in news, but I just couldn't do it because of the time constraints. And we send our condolences, by the way, to you and your Thanks. family for your sister, too, passing away. Which is more than some people at the free press did, but thank you. And you said you were kind of locked at a desk covering the news, you know, when you were working in the news. How different was it being locked to a desk than covering, you know, sporting events, being on the go and on the run at these sporting events. It was like night and day because when I worked news, two thirty, three o'clock, I was going home for the day. Whereas in sports, my event might have started at seven o'clock at night and I get there at three thirty or four o'clock to cover a Tiger game or a Pistons game. So it was like totally different. You know, something would come over, can you bang this out and work on that? Can you bang this out, work on that? Uh, this guy just got shot. Can we call and check? So it was a totally different 
uh, atmosphere, but because you're a journalist and you try to answer the five W's, who, what, when, where, why, and how, uh, I was able to do it. And like I said, I wrote 15 front-page stories. And there was a Saturday where I had a front-page story in sports and a front-page story in news. So I made a poster and I put put it up in my office. In my office because that had never happened before. So you had I mean, 15 1A stories. You 15 said, stories. Now, what was your 1A. favorite one? They hit 1A. Uh, Zoe Kalpakis, I think I'm spelling her, saying her last name right. She was trying out for the Olympic team in snowboarding. So I think that was my favorite because that ran in front of sports. And the same time, I had another story running on the front page of news. So that was like my, you know, coup de grace. I, it was just fantastic to see. I'm on front page of sports, front page of news, and you can't do that if you're not any good, right? I agree. Best yeah. of both worlds right there. Yeah, that was great. Double the pleasure. Yeah. Now, it appears very interesting because your story now mirrors how I started my practice because I worked eight years in community mental health, and you start to kind of look at administrations and how things are ran, and eventually you come to realize, okay, you know what? I think I'd just rather go on my own, and rather be, I'd rather be the person that dictates the success or failure of my life. Now, being that I work with now a team of people, uh, in the practice I work by myself, but in the podcast I work with a team of people, and so the part that interests me and is fascinating is, you know, sometimes we joke around and things like that with the fellas and things like that, but as a sports writer, you were a long-time sports writer, and you have people that you feel like were less qualified than you giving you input, denying stories, or things like that. The part that I'm fascinated with is, as a sports writer, what does it take for you to kind of feel respected and what would you have needed in a working relationship with the superiors to maybe even make you feel better at the time? You know what was important to me and still is? My relationships outside of the paper. I mean, I can call Isaiah Thomas. He's going to pick up the phone and call me back. I can call Rick Mahorn, Grant Long. So the people that I dealt with outside of the paper, they respect me. And I got like 250 tweets or whatever saying congratulations i enjoy reading you 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 created memories for people so that's what i care about you don't work 30 years somewhere and not be able to be good i'm sorry they're not going to give you free money for 30 years let you travel with the pistons for 10 years and not be able to be functional at your job and if i wasn't functional at my job then you're idiots for keeping me for 30 years so i i felt like i paid my dues I got up Christmas morning to go to Chicago to cover Pistons Bulls. I paid my dues. I don't owe anybody anything. And I, I get tired of having to justify my career to people inside because you didn't like me. So, no, I don't have any regrets about my career. I did some things wrong. I, there's people who are still there who did some things wrong, fabricating stories, making stories up. Mm-hmm. So don't tell me that. You know, I wasn't maybe as good as you thought I was. No, I was 30 years good, and you paid me every week for 30 years. So, no, I'm not going to take anything negative out of my experience because I I paid my dues. And you brought up the Pistons, being around the Pistons, covering the Pistons for so long, and you wrote a book about the Pistons, too. Actually, two. And two. Yes. So, Tales from the Detroit Pistons and Tales from the room. Pistons Locker Room. Yes. Yep. So you got to know the bad boys, and right. personally, too. You had Rick Mahorn contribute to the book. Right. Joe Dumars contribute to the book. Mm-hmm. What are some of your favorite memories from being around those bad boys Pistons? Oh, my gosh. Um, I was at practice one day, and Isaiah Thomas cold cocked Bill and Beer. He <laughs> sucker punched him. And Don Chaney had to call practice off. And I guess really my greatest memory was 
the all four season because we didn't see it coming. Those guys were great to talk to. Jerry Stackhouse has said, you know what? Rasheed Wallace is a great guy and we should trade for him. And they got rid of Jerry and they ended up trading for Rasheed. And I'm saying, oh, this guy's had a bad reputation. But Rasheed Wallace was one of the nicest guys I ever covered. We go bowling on the road. He was just a great locker room teammate, a great leader. So that that was probably the the most fun I had covering a season in 04. Larry Brown was crazy. He let me he let me take the uh team plane back from Seattle and I felt like I was totally out of place because they're like babied and pampered and the food and the lounge chairs that they sit in. I mean, and that's felt like I was sitting in the back with George Blaha and Greg Kelson and it was like, wow, I'm on the Pistons team plane. So that that was probably my greatest experience. And I just had a lot of fun covering that team because there were a lot of great personalities. So how comparable were those bad boy Pistons teams that won the back-to-back championships in 89-90 to the 04 championship Pistons team? The old, the 89-90, little gruffer. It was hard to to maybe sometimes build relationships. I had to go out there. Remember the day that Dennis Robin had a shotgun in his Jeep? I had to go out there all day and sit around because he thought he was losing his mind. So that group was a little tougher. Lambeer was a little tougher to deal with. Uh-huh. Uh, I had a good relationship with Isaiah. You know, Rick at the time, we were kind of building a relationship. So that group, you know, James Edwards, John Sally, it was a colorful group, tough group. I probably had better relationships with the 04 team, even though I have a great relationship now with Isaiah Thomas and Rick Mahorn. But uh, totally different guys, totally different environment, but I thought I built a relationship with both groups that they respected me. They won't talk to you if they don't respect you. And that's putting in the time, that's being fair, that's when you write something controversial, being there the next day so they can look you in the eye and say, Perry, you're a piece of crap. But they still respect you. So it's about relationships. If you don't build them, you have nothing. Now, I was fascinated because obviously when you cover a team, you're there day in, day out. You go to practice. You go to the game. You cover the team. Shoot around. You shoot around day of, uh, post-game, you know, tough losses, great wins, all that. And it's definitely very involved, and you have to be definitely on point and pay attention and develop those relationships so you get the stories. And obviously with travel and going on the road with the team, so how does it get set up where you're on the team playing with the Pistons? Was there travel issues, or do they just come over to you and say, hey, you know what, in this scenario, on this trip versus Seattle, afterwards come on the plane? How how does that happen? That's the only time it ever happened. I had my stuff at the game, and I was going to go to the airport after the game was over. And so Larry said, you got your stuff? I said, yeah. He said, well, come on, get on the plane. I said, are you serious? Really? He said, yeah, come on. So it was the only time I was ever on Ron Ball 1. And we left together, got on the team bus, and flew back to Detroit. And it's the only time I'd ever been on a team plane. And it was just, like, surreal because their lifestyle is crazy. They had, like, three or four stewardess. Oh, my God. They lived it up at times, just right, the too. Food. There was so much food that I got that was, I couldn't eat it all. But they live like kings, and they get treated like kings. And it just it just happened. Larry Brown liked me, and he respected my work. And I just had my stuff there. He said, come on, get on the plane. So I said, cool. Very nice. Now, how close did you get to know these Pistons players that you covered? And how about that fine line? And how tough it is not to cross it. You know, you want to get to know these guys. You want to build up the relationships, sustain them over time, as you had noted yourself already. But, you know, how do you not cross that fine line of getting to know them 
too well where you don't want to write the controversial piece about these guys when there is some bad stuff that comes out about these guys, perhaps. You can't be a fan. For example, uh, Joe Dumars' last game was against Atlanta, game five of that series, and we were down in Atlanta. The night before, I guess a bunch of guys had been smoking a little Mary Jane. Uh huh. A little and bit of that green, huh? So I found out about it after the fact. And back then, we could write something and not attribute it. So my source, who was a player, said, Yeah, we didn't play that well. You know, we had been out kind of smoking the herb. <laughs> so, I, uh-huh. so I wrote it. And so, like, it was, I remember uh, Mike Stone was like, why didn't he just quote people and why would he write that and how do we know it's true? So they had Jerome Williams come on. They said, hey, Jerome, Perry Farrell wrote this story about marijuana use and he was saying like half the league uses marijuana. And they said, Jerome, is there any truth to that? He said, yeah, Perry was low. It's probably more like 70% of the league. <laughs> so, he was being too considerate and generous there, Yeah, huh? so he, he validated what I wrote. And so even though I didn't quote anybody, this was true, and it happened, and I had more than one guy tell me. So back then you could write that. Now you couldn't because they would say, well, you need two sources, at least one on the record. But, yeah, I mean, it just happened, and that was like created a lot of buzz, but it was true. And I trusted those guys, and they trusted me enough to tell me. Jerome was one of the guys that told me, and another guy told me that, yeah, we was out, you know, some guys were out, and they didn't play that well the next day because they were probably – buzzing down from the high so it's just it's just what it was and the other thing is whatever i saw on the road stayed on the road and i saw some stuff i bet and i saw some very attractive (laughs) and they just said hey whatever you see here don't bring it back to detroit i said okay i always kept my word well you know what guys marijuana has been well now it's legalized in the state of michigan but it's been talked about as being heavily utilized in the game as in the nba for a long long time now now, how prevalent do you think it truly was back then, and do you think it is now as well, Perry? In the prevalent league? then, prevalent now. Guys smoke a lot of marijuana. So who was the hardest guy to cover when you were covering the Pistons? Now, you brought up Bill Lambeer, some of those bad boys, guys who I imagine were hard to deal with at times. But is there one that really, really sticks out that was the hardest guy to deal with for you? Bad boys, Pistons? Yeah, of those guys, always, it was specifically. Always, it was always Bill. Bill okay. was tough. Now, why was he tough to deal with for you, Perry? Just short, to the point. Wasn't going to go out of his comfort zone to talk to you. So I think it was uh, by far Bill Lambeer was a tough guy because he wanted to make sure he kept his persona. He didn't like the media per se. We have a better relationship now when he became coach of the Detroit Shock. I had a better relationship with him then than I did when he was a a player. So by far he, he was the toughest guy to cover. So, Perry, how did you get into the journalism game? What was it? Were you a young child that had a writer that was somebody that you looked up to? How, what was your path to become uh, a sports journalist? It was simple, stupid. I was in the 10th grade. I liked sports and I liked to write. <laughs> and it was as simple that. as that. Yeah. So I went to Central Michigan for a uh, high school journalism convention, and there was an on-the-spot news contest, and I won it. And Jim Wojcik, who was my mentor at the time, he said, yeah, you need to come to Central. I was the first African-American sports editor at Central Michigan, CM Life. I helped start a scholarship fund that has put 20-plus minority students through Central, through uh, an endowment. And I want to be known for that. You know, I just didn't – I wasn't selfish, and I wasn't self-serving like some of my colleagues are today and still are. 
I tried to do things to help other people. I, I'm most proud of starting Lim Tucker Scholarship Fund. He's from Saginaw. I'm from Saginaw. He was a CBS News correspondent on the weekends. He died of cancer. Fred Mester wanted to honor him, so we got together, had a meeting out in Birmingham, and we started that fund. And Kirkland Crawford was one of the recipients who now works at the Free Press. So I feel like, yeah, I was help, I helped you get through college because I started that fund. So I'm very proud of that fact. So when you first start, what were your early goals and dreams when you first start thinking about, okay, I could do this as a living? Wow. I just, I went to Central Undergrad, and then I got a scholarship with Booth Newspapers to go to grad school. So I went to Michigan for free. And I'd always wanted to go to Michigan. The first football game I ever watched on TV was Michigan-Ohio State 1969, the 24-12 to game. So I've been a Michigan fan forever. And so I got a scholarship and a chance to go to Michigan, and it I loved it. I loved being there. I loved being a Michigan student. And so then I, they were supposed to have me work for a year at the Ann Arbor News, and they didn't know what they wanted to do with me. And the Louisville Courier-Journal was basically begging me to come down there and work. They would call every week. Uh, we got this spot open for you, high school sports. So I asked Booth, you know, what are you going to do with me after the year is up? He said, we really don't know. So I'm leaving. I'm going to Kentucky. So I worked there for two years. And then I got a job in Milwaukee, Milwaukee Journal. I was only the African-American sports writer in the whole state. So I heard the N-word quite a bit. Uh I hate Milwaukee. It's just not an upperly mobile city for African-American male. So I worked there four years. I thought I was stuck. I bought a house in November, had it redone, uh, 72nd and Capital area. And so then here comes the free press that February. They offered me a job Valentine's weekend. I'm saying, let's get in this house. Let's fix it up. So I had to put it up for sale, and I sold it while I was moving. So I lost a bunch of money. But my dream was always to work at the Free Press. So when I came here, I started covering Michigan State football and basketball, George Perlis. We had some blowouts. Tough dude. He called me one day yelling and screaming because I know we knew there were steroids issues up there. Tony Mandridge, who later admitted to taking and using steroids. So they wanted me to call players and see what they talked to me. So he got wind of it. He called my house yelling and screaming. I said, George, I'll be up there in an hour. So I got up, went up to his office, slammed the door. We just yelled at each other for like 20, 25 minutes. But he respected the fact that I came up and got in his face. So I'll bring everybody in the office. You can talk to whoever you want. So they weren't going to say anything in the office. So it ended up not really, really being a good story. But we do find out later that, yeah, there was a lot of guys on that team using steroids. And Tony Mandridge admitted it later after he failed as a pro. And so. so eventually you start to realize that these guys would vigorously defend lies. And so because in my early work now covering uh, teams and things like that, reporters say, yeah, you know, these guys stand in front of the microphone and it's a lot of PR. They're trying to, you know, spin something in the, the favor of the organization, the team or anything like that. And they say, yeah, you know, sometimes when uh, these coaches get caught lying, some reporters don't even care anymore because it's like, yeah, they just openly lie. And it's really interesting that, you know what, you had knockout, drag out conversations. What would they be yelling at you at? Like, how dare you? This is totally false. Were they vigorously yelling and defending lies? Or their perception of what really happened? George Perlis wanted to make sure that I went through him before I talked to these guys. Mm. Dave Robinson, my sports editor, another guy that I had problems with, wanted me to go behind his back and just call him behind his back. So I was stuck. I was just I just got there. They just won a Rose Bowl. 
So I'm trying to do my job and at the same time build relationships. But like Miss said, me and George had it out, but he never disrespected me. You know, it's like, okay, you have a job to do. You're not going to do it the way they want you to do it. I'll bring people in my office. You can talk to whoever you want to, but you're not going to call behind my back. So I had to do what I had to do. So they came in. They weren't going to say anything in his office. I mean, we know that. So I had to do what I had to do. And what turned out to be a fact was a fact that some of the guys on the team was using steroids. One guy threatened me, said, well, yeah, but if I hear, see my name in the paper, I'll come after you. I said, you better come with a gun because I'll have one too. You told him what's up right there. Mm-hmm. Now, in Milwaukee, you said you had to deal with, well, people calling racism. you the N-word and right. racism, blatant racism. Yeah. How was that for you? How tough was it at times to deal with all of that happening? Milwaukee was a very prejudiced city, and they would, I would be on the front page of the sports section, and they would call and say, why well, you get that N-word on front of your section? So they start taking me off the front of the section. So I was covering Wisconsin football and basketball. At the time, they were terrible, both sports. That's where, I, that's where I met Ray McCallum at. So I would go back and forth from Madison to Milwaukee, 68 miles one way, trying to cover a beat that I, I had no clue what I was doing. Uh, there was a big brouhaha. Uh, Elroy Hirsch was the athletic director, and there was some issue where he was, like, doing something that wasn't right. And I'm I'm sitting up here reading about it in the Sentinel, and I'm supposed to be covering it. It's like I had no idea what I was doing. So – it was a uh, tough experience. I learned a lot. It toughened me up as far as dealing with people. My last year there, I think the team went 1-11. Dave McClain had died in front of his team, came out of the sauna, had a heart attack, and died right there. So that year was really hard because they only won one game. They're not like they like they are now. They're a power. But, yeah. So I learned a lot about covering stuff and staying on top of things and building relationships. But it was a hard four years because I didn't like the city. I had a good sports editor, but I just didn't, I had to learn what they wanted from me. So what's your word of advice to any young, you know, African-American sports writer out there today, especially in this day and age of social media, where on Twitter you see all these constant, oh, racist tweets directed towards African-Americans, well, directed towards any minority, directed towards females. What would you tell any of these individuals that are, you know, trying to really get uh, involved in the sports media industry. You have to have a tough skin and you have to um, block out the noise. You have to have a goal in mind. You have to stay with your goal. Like in the Free Press Sports Department now, you have one African-American desk editor and you have one sports writer. That's ridiculous. There should be opportunities for all races, but you have to be good. And I'm sorry to say this, but you have to be twice as good to be African-American reporter as you do a white reporter, and I, I, I feel that to this day. So you just have to be uh, dedicated to what you're trying to do, have tunnel vision, and don't let people keep you from your goal because if you do, you'll never accomplish anything. Now, looking at the current state of journalism and sports writing, you kind of have a little bit of a shift. You see that a lot of these papers are downsizing, cutting staff, going away from actually hiring people to cover. I mean, there are certain uh, newspapers that don't send writers on the road to cover the team and you look at costs and now you have this new model that has emerged in the last couple of years called the athletic where it's a subscription based model. Do you have a take on that? Do you think that that maybe is the way to go for a young writer is to say, you know what, if I have quality work, compensate me for the work that I do, build a following and just go maybe independent or go with a subscription based model as opposed to maybe a traditional newspaper? I would say traditional based model because I think the newspapers as we know it is dying quickly. 
There's no direction. We cover hardly anything. It's embarrassing what we don't cover. And you use the excuse when nobody read it online. I just have a real problem with that. That's why I know it was time for me to go because how can you not deco- how can you not cover Detroit Mercy basketball? How can you not cover Oakland U basketball? At least a story or something. And we just totally ignore them like they don't exist. And I, I have a real problem with that. And I don't think it's fair. I don't think it's professional. And don't tell me, well, nobody will read it. What kind of lame excuse is that? So I will, I urge my students, PR, websites, but the newspaper business, we're, we're in a free fall. And, it, and it's really shocking how irrelevant one of the great papers in this country has become. It's It's interesting, too, because part of what you see is the parts that make a story or something that shows up online are being taken away. Just look at the fact that copy editors aren't being utilized. That'd be like in this medium, I'd be like, you know what, Vito, just go stand out there. We don't even need a microphone. Let's just start talking and whatever I pick up, I pick up. And then you wonder why you get these weird headlines or things that are actually incorrect in a headline. And you go, wow, the fundamental pieces of putting together a story with accurate information, a proper tagged headline, and credit sometimes isn't even done properly. And it's interesting to look at it from that perspective. But it's, uh, it's a situation in which, in a business model, sometimes you have to look at those kind of things. And it's interesting. I don't know. Like I said, some people will say maybe in the next five to ten years there won't be many papers at all that cover sports. It's tough to watch because mm-hmm. it's painful because you used to be – Cover your beat, break a story, uh, you feel good about yourself, people sit down and read it in the morning, all that is gone, mm-hmm. and it's really uh, discouraging. Well, print media is going by the wayside. It's just dying out, bleeding out completely, and dying, and, and now online it's all aimed towards digital media and hits online for these articles, and about guys such as Jim Harbaugh, whatever gets hits, right, and gets clicks, and you've seen these papers drive their content towards that, you know, gear their online content specifically for that, Perry. All the goals are basically digital. You know, how many times can Jim Harbaugh blow his nose? And <laughs> how can how many people can say Mark D'Antonio's name wrong? And five things to take from this game. And it's like there's no storytelling. Is it kind of the way you put it, like the commercialization of the paper where they don't really care about the deeper meaning? It's like, hey, if you can get, you know, a million clicks, you can write about a turtle. You know what I mean? Is that what you're looking at? Is that, you know what, if I can, you know, if I can prove that this is going to get a million hits, you can write about whatever you want and, and call it sports. News side, if it was a cat story or a dog story or a fish story, they know it would get a lot of hits. <laughs> I wrote a lot of fish stories. Sturgeon. And they were so fun and so newsworthy, right? <laughs> oh, my God. You know, I did what I was told to do. And wow. they got the response that they wanted. Like, here's largest sturgeons ever caught. <laughs> like, okay. And that's where we're at. And I just, it's just frustrating. Well, it sounds so stupid and not commonsensical, but it's occurring on a regular basis in news, in sports. And hey, back to Jim Harbaugh, your man. Not really your man, I know. I've seen your Facebook post. You've gone after Jim recently in the past. And him not being, well, well, doing enough at Michigan at least, as of now. Through four years on the job, he hasn't done enough, in my opinion, either. Perry, shed some light on what you've seen Jim Harbaugh do erroneously throughout his tenure in Ann Arbor so far. You, you're paying $9 million to go 0-4 against Ohio State. You're fortunate to be 2-2 two two against Michigan State. You see the people leaving after every year, 
Al Washington is gone now. Greg Madison is gone. Look at the players who have transferred. He's a tough person to deal with. He's an egomaniac. And it's not going to get better because he's not going to change with the times because he's incapable of changing. And Ward Manuel will never fire him. But don't tell me, oh, Urban Meyer's gone now. Now we have a chance. What kind of sick opinion is that? Because Urban Meyer's gone now, we have a chance. And now you got two of your guys at Ohio State that got hired under your nose, away from you. It's just, it's hard to watch. I didn't watch a lot of games this year because I know I get emotionally involved and I get frustrated. But they gave up 103 points in the last two games. That's that's a very telling statistic for a guy making nine million dollars a year. Well, then guys, you had a vaunted D. They were the number one defense in the nation. All these great defensive playmakers. They let up uh, 62 points to Ohio State, 41 to Florida. Now, not all to the Florida offensive attack, but Michigan's D, that was their bread and butter. Then it crumbled down the stretch. Come on, that can't be happening if you want to be elite and want to beat the big boys, beat Ohio State on a regular basis. Yeah, so I'm, I'm wondering why Ryan Day would hire two people from that staff and the last two games they gave up an average of 50 points a game. So... Al, Al Washington is a big loss because he's a great recruiter. They're going to really miss him. They're going to pay for letting him get away. But, you know, Greg Madison, he wasn't that good as a D coordinator at Notre Dame. He wasn't good under, was it Lloyd Carr or Brady Hoke? Brady Hoke. At Michigan. So I'm not really concerned about Madison leaving, but Al Washington, they will, they will miss on the recruiting trail a lot. Well, if you guys want to be elite at Michigan, and typically Michigan is held to a higher standard of the fans – try to hold Michigan to a higher standard. And I think because of tradition over the years, which isn't really evident right now, it's not visible, that tradition, because you're not beating Ohio State. You're not beating your rivals. But for me, if you want to be elite one day, well, you got to beat Ohio State no matter who's coaching over there, the right last, in Columbus. The last time Michigan was elite was in 1997 when they went undefeated. If you look before and after, it's been a long stretch of time where it is like was dominant and it's ran through people. So it's not an elite program, and if he thinks that they are, he's he's making a mistake. Well, Harbaugh, 0-4 against Ohio State, 2-2 two two against Michigan State. But this year, Doc, now John McAroon, okay, as a disclaimer here, is a huge Sparty fan. He went to Michigan State for his undergrad studies. So he loves himself some Sparty. Mm-hmm. Now, Sparty was in that game this past season against Michigan. Michigan State, based on talent alone and the injuries and Lewerke sucking it up and having to play Rocky Lombardi at the very end of that game, should not have been in that contest against Michigan. And, it, and Michigan State was, though, John. I think that's a bad sign for Harbaugh and company that you were so close against Michigan State. So, really, they're lucky, as you said, Perry, to be 2-2 two and two against State, in my opinion. Well, the 3-9 the and nine year, they barely won that game. I mean, you thought they were going to go in there and beat them by 30 points. It was a close game. Mark D'Antonio's a better coach than Jim Harbaugh. Let's be honest. He's a better coach. He gets probably more out of his players. Jim Harbaugh gets five stars, four stars. D'Antoni gets three stars, and they become better players. So if I had a choice between coaches, and let me say this, I never thought I would love John Beeline. I love John Beeline. When he first got here, they couldn't rebound. They couldn't defend. Now they do both of those things as well as any team in the Big Ten. I'm a big John Beeline fan. I'm not a big Jim Harbaugh fan. I'm a Mark D'Antonio fan. I'm not a Jim Harbaugh fan because of the results aren't there. I mean, John Beeline took that team to the national championship game. They got great talent. Guys get better. Guys go to the pros. Guys 
academically excel. So I'm a big John Beeline fan, and I believe in his program. Now, not only did you cover the Pistons during the Bad Boys era, you covered the Lions during the Barry Sanders era, the Tigers with Sparky Anderson. You got a chance to talk and uh, cover Lou Whitaker and Alan Trammell. So you've covered a lot of great sporting events and teams here in Detroit. What were your experiences like covering the Lions and Tigers? Barry Sanders was probably one of the cheapest guys (laughs) on that team. I was in the locker room one day, and I guess he had bought a new shirt. And Brett Perryman teased him for about 10 minutes. Barry, you actually spent some money? You bought a shirt? So it was great knowing one of the greatest runners ever. And like one day he came up to me and said, what do you think is wrong with us? So I gave him my opinion. It was like, Barry Sanders just asked me what I thought was wrong with them. So that was great. I mean, a great guy, uh, very quiet, tremendous athlete. And to be able to say that you knew that guy, I mean, that's an honor for me. So my favorite Sparky Anderson story, he loved ACC basketball. He did. So Rob Deere, remember him? Big outfielder. Uh, Big home run guy, uh, right? 20 home runs, 200 strikeouts. Yeah, Big K, all power, (laughs) and then striking out a ton too. So Sparky, Rob was gaining a little bit of weight. Uniform was a little tight. (laughs) So Sparky walks up to him in front of us and says, hey, Rob, they sure would love those cakes in prison. (laughs) <laughs> oh my god really and Rob Deere really? turned five shades of red and it's like he didn't just say that in front of us I talk about his you know getting his size you know, there yeah. it be a there. so Sparky yeah. like embarrassed him saying, yeah. he didn't really say that mm-hmm. but Sparky you go in there and you be entertained for a half hour I mean he spin them tell jokes <laughs> you know he's smoking a cigar just a great guy to be around I had a great relationship with Jim Leland you know, because he knew I was a bowler, somebody told him. So we would talk bowling. He had uh, one, was it, nephew went to Notre Dame, played football, one went to Michigan, the Millers. I think those okay. his sister's kids. Jim Leland, we go in there, he's smoking those Marlboros. Those things can't be good for you, are they? Those nah. Marlboros are tough. <laughs> but Jim Leland was an emotional guy. He was a straight shooter. I love the fact that he he respected you, whether he didn't like what you wrote or not. So I met some, I just met some incredible people. I mean, Chuck Daly, the best dresser ever. Daddy Rich, you know, he had the hair and the and the uh, suits and the, uh, even at practice, he, his warm ups, he was clean. I love Chuck Daly. So a little kid from Saginaw, from Buenavista High School, gets a chance to meet all those guys, and it was just a great experience for me. So Sparky Anderson, Jim Leland, Candor too. And great senses of humor is what I got from those guys. If you don't want to know about yourself, don't ask them because they would tell you. <laughs> and how different and similar were those two uh, to each other, Jim Leland and Sparky Anderson? How similar and how different were they? Great baseball guys, great communicators with their team. They knew how to motivate you. They didn't mince words. Sparky was probably a little more analytical than Jim. You know, Jim would start on a tangent and get the – Tobacco going and the cigarettes, you know, this is a very high energy guy. But both were ba- were great baseball men, and that's what I liked about both of them. They knew the game. How about covering Sweet Lou and Tram? What was that like for you? Lou was quiet, but he talked to me. Tram is one of the classiest people I've ever met. That's why I don't like a real, uh, Pudge Rodriguez because he treated him like dirt. Tram was a first class guy. He should have been a Hall of Fame long, way before they finally put him in there. Just if you want to know the truth, and if you want to shoot 
the breeze with somebody that you know that's going to tell you the truth, that's Alan Trammell. Lou Whitaker was a little more quiet. He should be in the Hall of Fame. His numbers ranked with everybody else's. But Lou was just a quiet guy. You know, from Virginia, came up to the big city with the big lights. He just was a different dude. But we always got along. And I wonder if being quiet, as quiet as he was, hurt his Hall of Fame candidacy. I wonder if that didn't. Do you think it affects media members and writers when they're voting for these guys for the Hall of Fame? Yeah, if you're not, like, media savvy and don't come off as as caring about what we're doing— I think guys hold it against you. And I think that's probably what's keeping him out of the Hall of Fame. But Lou's a great guy, one of the great fielders at his position ever. But I just think because he was quiet and maybe didn't uh, entertain the media like Allen did, that might be have some something to do with it. So I want to pick your brain now as we kind of conclude this week's episode of Two Bad Hombres with the legendary Perry A. Farrell. One Not just Perry Farrell. Perry A. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah, that's right. They and I'm, you're the big dog. I'm a buster, right? You love calling me a buster. So well, I'll admit I'll that call to the like masses out there. Yeah. And he does. He does. He calls it like <laughs> right, he sees right. it. And you know what? He always enlivened the atmosphere in the <laughs> locker room. Yeah. Or not in the locker room, but in the press box with right. me and other media members. <laughs> there were young guys, old guys with comments like that. You just kept it entertaining and all of us on our feet. But anyways, to end this week's episode. I always appreciated you, though. Go ahead. Thank you. I appreciate you, too. here. All throughout the in years. In the cold, you know, braving you my came life out, to come out. Yeah. Even in the cold. And it's kind of been, well, a cold spell, a long-time cold spell now for the Pistons. How about the modern-day Pistons? This current rendition of the Pistons squad that has this supposed big three, which isn't a big three, by any stretch of the imagination, with Reggie Jackson, Blake Griffin, and Andre Drummond. What direction should these Pistons head in moving forward? You got to blow that thing up. Yeah, 100%. they're not going to make the playoffs. You got three bad contracts. You got Andre, one hundred forty-eight million. You got Blake getting ready to make thirty-five million a year for the next three years or four years. Reggie Jackson, I will get rid of him as soon as, as his contract is up. You have to blow that thing up because it's, they're not going to win. You got a three-point shooting, fast-paced small ball league, and you got a giant in the middle. And another guy, 6'9", who's basically, he's having his best scoring year ever. But let's be honest, he's on the downside of his career. So that whole thing is a mess. They're not going to be able to get to where they want to be until they just basically blow that thing up and start all over. And because it's yeah. not working. And here's the fascinating part. Look at the optics of this. So the Pistons play the Lakers on the road, and the Pistons owner is talking to the media at another house watching his own team get destroyed by the Lakers without LeBron James in a situation where Andre Drummond, uh, Blake Griffin, Reggie Jackson, they, they don't lose the game. They get destroyed by the Lakers. And a guy, a hometown guy here, a guy from Flint, Kyle Kuzma, Kuzma. drops 41 yeah, career points. career-high 41 points on and top of everything else. You right? look at the optics of that, and after you know, uh, Tom Gorris says that he had a meeting with everybody, a non-mandatory meeting, and he said that I, he believes that this team can overcome adversity. The interesting part is the amount of PR that he's willing to try and throw out there in an empty barn at Little Caesars Arena. Nobody's buying it, and they're still trying to sell it. It's amazing. The place is half empty all the time, and and this is the problem. Why would you own a house and then go rent one from somebody else? Yeah, bad decision. You're a tenant. You're an afterthought in that building, and if you walk in there, you can see where the Pistons are an afterthought your season ticket holders were from northern Oakland County, right. and then we're not going to come downtown Detroit to watch that team play. A terrible decision. You put black whatever over the seat so it doesn't look as empty as what it is. It's just it's a painful watch. It's embarrassing. 
And I wish Tom Gores would just sell the team, sell it to Dan Gilbert or somebody because they're not going anywhere. And then they're not going to be bad enough to get Zion Williamson, and they're not going to be good enough to make the playoffs. So you're in limbo. Yeah, and the current plan is wait till after 2019, 2020 when all the contracts go away. That's the plan. And you still got a season and a half to watch this garbage. With and, you player, were tra- and you were trying to be relevant this year. With the you player, were in win-now mode, apparently. Yeah, and you're under 500 right now, the, out of the playoff race. With the player, Blake Griffin, dropping 30 points a game and hustling. He's the only guy on the team. That's about it. They're a one-man team, and they got to wait until after next year to start over. And it's that's a, a bad, bad watch. Yep. And, and this year's crop of freshmen coming out, you got Zion Williamson, R.J. Yeah. Barrett. This Marcus Howard, you see yeah. what he's doing in Marquette? Yeah. He dropped 53 last night. He's like a 6'1 guard, but he shoots it better than anybody on the Pistons team right now. So you're going to miss out on all those guys. You're going to be like the 8th or ninth or 10th in the lottery. You're not going to get a guy like Zion Williamson. I would lose every game to get Zion Williamson. And right now, Cleveland's in in the lead. I will keep losing. And Cleveland's going to keep losing. There's some bad teams, some stinko teams. The Pistons aren't bad enough to truly tank and get Zion Williamson at the top of the NBA draft this summer. And it kind of goes into this next question of mine that I wanted to ask you about, Perry. And it's the concept of tanking. Are you for it or against it? Now, based on what you just said, it sounds like, for the Pistons' sake, you are for tanking. It's too late now. They've won too many games. They're not going to be – they'll be a low lottery team probably. I'm not really – I used to hate the fact, okay, I'm losing on purpose so I can get a guy. That just doesn't sound right. But in the case of Zion, I'm I'm Cleveland. I'm already only have eight wins. I'm eight and thirty four, something yeah, like eight that. Yeah, eight wins, I eight think, right now. Yeah, they're real bad. So yeah, I want Zion Williamson because I lost LeBron James. So yeah, lose, get Zion Williamson, and that's going to bring people back to your stadium because this guy's going to be special. He's like a once-in-a-lifetime type of player. So you build now your team around him. You got something to look forward to, and you're still going to be mediocre so you can build some pieces. But guys will want to play with Zion Williamson. So, yeah, I'm going to lose to get him. And Cleveland keeps getting lucky, keeps getting these number one overall draft picks. First, LBJ and LeBron James. Then Kyrie Irving. Once LeBron left, they got Kyrie. Anthony Bennett was a number one pick, too. He was a bust. But a a lot of good number one overall picks, well, they've ended up with that pick, at least, and have made some good decisions there, too. Okay, do I want Luke Kennard or do I want uh, Donovan Mitchell? Now, Mitchell hasn't been great this year, but everybody's going to say Mitchell. All day long, Who do I want? Oh, Mitchell over Kennard. Okay. To answer your question, Mitchell. Do I want Devin Booker or do I want Stanley Johnson? Booker, big time. Thank They've you. made some bad draft picks. Thank you. And it starts with Stan Van Gundy, but even before that with Joe Dumars. Towards the end, Joe D wasn't making the right decisions consistently enough, in my opinion. Ben Perry. Gordon, Charlie Villanueva was a disaster. Yeah. That, was, that yeah. was a bad uh, free agent acquisition. And Darko, I could have had Carmelo. Yeah, you had Tayshaun Prince. I could have had Dwayne Wade. I could have had Chris Bosh. Mm-hmm. And that keeps me rolling when Rashid and Ben starting to get old, I got Chris Bosch or I got Dwayne Wade with a three-guard rotation with Rip and Chauncey. I'm still rolling now. And they still were rolling after Darko, but that signaled like the downward trend. Mm-hmm. It took a while, but you got to get a great player at two when you have a great team. Like the year Boston drafted Lynn Bias, you know, unfortunately he died. But mm-hmm. they were a good team then, so he would have been like Larry Bird's backup and then took Larry Bird's spot. But stuff like that happens. But you can't miss on the number two pick. You just can't do it. Now, when the Pistons traded Chauncey for Allen Iverson, I believe they were attempting disaster. to raise two on the fly. Mm-hmm. But it was disastrous. Now, do you know what the logic was behind that move for Joe Dumars when he made that move? Well, 
it killed team chemistry. Mm-hmm. He thought Allen Iverson, he was getting the same one who was in Philly, mm-hmm. but they weren't. Allen Iverson is one of the worst people I've ever met in the world. Mm-hmm. He's in my top five. Mm-hmm. Just a despicable human being. Uh, didn't like going to practice. Has been well documented. He thought he was getting a superstar, but we, what he got was a cancer. And that Rip and Allen Iverson thing, that never worked and never was going to work because Chauncey was Rip's boy. So I'll have to ask you, who was one of the worst athletes to cover and who was one of the best athletes to cover in your time working in Detroit sports? Allen Iverson, one of the worst people I ever covered. Um, like I said, Alan Trammell, class dude, uh, Isaiah Thomas, Barry Sanders, all those guys were great to cover. And I bet Chauncey Billups mm-hmm. stands up there, Chauncey, too, among the best to cover. Yeah. So articulate, professional, respectable. Rasheed. Rasheed was good, too, huh? He took me to a place in Portland, a restaurant, and I had the best steak I ever had in my life. It was unbelievable. It was a breakfast steak, and it was like, it melted in your mouth. And I'm not a steak eater. Mm-hmm. But Rasheed, for all his public persona, was one of the nicest people I ever met. This is a great dude. Did you recall anybody ever try to use you to put stuff out in the media against the team? All the time. Openly, see, like, and, you, and you're like, okay. See, guys who weren't playing became malcontents. Yeah. So they would try to leak stuff out so <laughs> that they would make themselves look better and make the coach look bad. It happens all the time. So you have to yeah. make sure, do I want to write this or not? Is this right. really worth it? So you have to kind of filter that stuff out. Back to Chauncey Billups. Now, there's been rumors about him becoming a GM, becoming a head coach. What do you think about that happening for Chauncey? Maybe very soon with the Minnesota Timberwolves, a team that he played for at one point. I wouldn't want to be a coach. I would say front office. Go to the front office, help run the organization. That way there's still pressure, but not as much pressure as coaching 82 games and getting 12 personalities to come together. I'd rather be a GM. Okay, Perry, one last question. We've had the privilege of sharing this last hour with Perry A. Farrell, longtime Detroit sports writer. One best piece of advice from my guy Vito in his sports journalism career. Relationships. Stay true to your relationships and don't compromise for the sake of making somebody else happy. So this be Fair you. enough. Yeah. Build you. them up, foster them, and sustain them over time, right? And that's key. When you have respect, you can write something bad about a person. Like Doug Collins was a nut. I mean, he was certified nut. But if you write something about somebody and they respect you, they'll pull you to the side and say, why did you do that? And then you tell them why. So, okay, I understand now. So you have to build a relationship. You have to be there the day after you write something bad. or You have to be there all the time so they, they build a trust factor with you and say, okay, okay, I'm going to write this. You might not like it. He said, well, I understand. So relationships. And you can't build relationships when you ignore programs. That way, if you do something that people don't like or that person doesn't like, at least they can say, well, you know what? He came up to me. We talked about it. I understand what he did. I didn't like it, but still, I respect him as a person. Perry A. Farrell, latest guest on Two Bad Hombres, a great conversation. Well, I know one thing, John. I'll just leave it at this. I trust in the man, the myth, the legend, Perry A. Farrell. Perry, thanks for all the time, man. Always a pleasure, guys. See you next year. (laughs) (laughs) Adios.